Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, we praise you, Father, for sending the Son to us, for announcing him with angels, for leading wise men to him with light from heaven, O Lord. Let us know that light from heaven through the word of God this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The saints may be seated. We're going to go to Luke chapter 2 this morning. That ought not come as too much of a surprise. <laughs> Luke chapter 2. I've decided this morning that I'd read the first 24 verses and um, make my comments based on that and some of the other adjoining texts from chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Luke and, and um, really look into this, this concept of the virgin birth, this doctrine of our faith, this beloved miracle that we all look to and celebrate this time of year, and rightly so. This, friends, is the ultimate gospel tale. And so I have you turn there, Luke chapter 2. And so Luke writes, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Father, in Jesus' name, let us experience, O Lord, what the shepherds experienced 
Let us experience it anew by the Holy Spirit, applying these proclamations in the written word to our heart. Put them before our eyes, O Lord, that we might celebrate the entrance of Christ into the world through the Virgin. Miraculous, yes, but the work of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's the story, as we've all heard it. It has been decried by so many over the years. I've even heard Christian people, and I know I've told you this repeatedly, who are very doubtful about this. I don't see how you can be doubtful about the events surrounding the nativity of Christ and not be doubtful of all of the gospel. And so I'm going to make the case to you again today that this is exactly how it happened. This is how the Savior entered the world. And I hope to explore with you this morning all that God had to do in the tapestry of history and in the, and in the wisdom and decrees of great men to bring this thing about. And it came to pass in, the, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, that's one of those great historical references of Luke. He, friends, they didn't use... <clears throat> The calendar system we have today, Luke couldn't have come out and said in the year 4 BC, while Herod was still alive, um, four years before Christ, when Herod was still alive, because it might have been five years because the Romans didn't have the numeral zero. So, I mean, he couldn't do this kind of thing. So he gives us these other points of location. Caesar Augustus, who had a long reign, all right, and he was really the the leader of the known world, the Roman Empire, if you will. But then he gives it a little closer gap, and he says, Quirinius was governor of Syria, and it was during the census. All the Jews remembered the census, because as you can see, it shook up their whole society. Whether you were pregnant or not, you didn't send in the absentee ballot and fill out the census report. You know, you had to get on your donkey and go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I forget how many miles that is. It's, I don't know, I think it's about 50 miles. And so we begin with this great historical reference that Luke makes. The events thus depicted, friends, are literal historical happenings. And that's how the writer presents them. Try to remember something. Everyone that thinks that science is always opposed to faith. Follow the science. We hear that a hundred times. Friends, Luke is a scientist. He's a physician. Let's not forget that. Luke is a physician. And a lot can be made of that. This is a man looking for hard historical facts. This is a man of facts. So what we don't have here is a piece of fiction. Luke is not a novelist. He's not a fiction writer. He's a journalist. He's suspended. He's on sabbatical from from his his term at the hospital. He's on sabbatical here, and and he's been hired out by presumably a wealthy patron to discover the truths surrounding the birth of the Christ child which aren't in the other books, by the way, right? They're not in the other, the other Gospels. This is, this is Luke's sole treatment of this subject. So he's not a fiction writer. He's a journalist or a chronicler, if you will, and that's very important among the Jews. Let's recognize at this moment that the Jews are the great chroniclers of history. The Old Testament is full of genealogies, right? So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so on down, right? They're chronicling their descendants, And there's references to historical kings and kingdoms. They have two long books in the Old Testament called Chronicles. These are history books. 
This is not fiction. Luke's not Jewish, but his subject is entirely Jewish, and he writes in order that both Jews and Gentiles can be informed of the facts with regard to the fulfillment of prophecy. Friends, all the great cultures of history emerging here. The language is Greek. The government is Roman. But the religious component component of the story is entirely Jewish. And so the subject that he concerns himself with is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. And so like the writers of old, the Jewish writer Matthew, in his gospel, Luke includes an extensive genealogy, as does Matthew. These are men chronicling the descendants leading to Christ to make a point of prophecy that should have been indisputable. And so the subject he concerns himself with is the fulfillment of prophecy. And like Matthew, he chronicles the genealogy. Now, if you go to the two genealogies, you'll find that they're different. Don't be troubled by that. Matthew is tracing the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke is tracing the genealogy of Mary. And there's a reason for that, and I've told you the reason. I won't go into it today because it's involved and it's not the subject that we're concerned with this morning, but both Joseph and Mary are descendants of David, all right? So Joseph was his legal father, but according to prophecy, the Messiah had to be a blood relation to David. That happened through Mary, all right? So God works all these things together for good, right? And friends, remember, the genealogy is a public record, a record that could be attained for purposes of probate to establish inheritance rights of claimants, And so we read in Luke chapter 3, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. In other words, Joseph was his legal father and a son that is an heir of all that belonged to King David. That is perhaps not so impressive to modern readers as it was to first century readers who were waiting for the successor of David to appear and to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And so Luke goes on, and I've Put in a portion of the genealogies just to show you. This is not a fictitious report. This is hard reporting. The son of Jaili, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melki, the son of Yana, the son of Yosef, the son of Matathia, the son of Shimi, the son of Yosef, the son of Judah, the son of Ioannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He rebuilt the temple back in the Persian era. All right, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Jose, the son of Eleazar, the son of Yoram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Menon, the son of Matapha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Friends, if he was writing fiction, his editor would never have allowed that passage to be in there. It's too wordy. It's unnecessary. You'll lose the reader. <laughs> but I put it in there because this isn't fiction. He's not looking for proof to be proofread by secular editors trying to make, make a buck on the gospel. Hey, these things will really sell. We'll put them in the store window, you know. Um, it's not like that at all. And he's not working for a profit here. Friends, the evangelists didn't want to become bestsellers. They were doing God's work. The story of the birth, therefore, is not a fiction. It's public record, and that's what Luke's establishing here. It's been obtained and reproduced by an investigative journalist that ought to make modern journalists blush with embarrassment. All of this is to say that the reader, to the reader that Jesus was born. Friends, there isn't anyone on any side of the aisle on this issue that doesn't believe Jesus was born. 
He was born to a particular family of the earth in a particular time. The place of his birth was determined by the Roman Emperor Augustus, which Luke makes abundantly clear. He notes that Syria had a Rome-appointed governor at that time as well, and he notes that the house of Joseph had come to Bethlehem in order to be registered. And thus far in the account, every aspect of his concern is readily confirmed from extra-biblical sources. You could find this out without even having to go to the Bible. Now, if you're reading from an older version of the Bible, it might say taxed. Did your version say taxed instead of registered? doesn't make any difference. The reason for registering, the, the, uh, the reason for a census is so that the sovereign can collect taxes to fund his empire, to expand his kingdom, and to enrich himself. I mean, a man that runs the whole world ought to have a nice pad, right? Which he did. Luke hopes to convey in this account that the true sovereign of the universe... The true Augustus, the real king of kings, is always working behind the scenes to bring about and establish his plans. The temporal, human Augustus used the census to enrich the empire and to order the kingdom on earth, but the real sovereign of the universe used the census to fulfill prophecy. Jesus was from Nazareth, friends. That's where they lived. That's why his name is Jesus of Nazareth. You know that, right? Where was Leonardo da Vinci from? Vinci. That's how you did it in those days. All right, not that those are the same days. But Jesus was from Nazareth. God had to get him to Bethlehem. Or the prophecy wouldn't work out, you see? And here you've got this ruler of the, of the known world who makes this decree. And he doesn't know he's making this decree because the real ruler of the known world put it in his heart to do it so he could get his son there to be born. The real sovereign of the universe used the census to fulfill prophecy so that Jesus of Nazareth could be born in the city of David, the city of his fathers. And so God miraculously uses human agency to ensure that his son is born in the ancient city of prophecy, Bethlehem, the city of Jesus' great-great-grandfather. Now, remember when they said um, no prophets came out of Galilee? You know, Nazareth is in Galilee. I have always told you that they were wrong anyway because Jonah was one and he came from Galilee. But Jesus didn't come out of Galilee. He came out of Judea. And this is where he was born. This is, this is where he's registered to pay taxes in the empire. So as I say, God knits together all of these temporal human agencies to bring about a great plan. Now, if that seems far-fetched to you, consider why the so-called kings of the earth opposed him so vehemently. Why did they oppose Jesus so vehemently? Vehemently, Even the evil priests knew that if they presented him according to prophecy as a king, they would find that their Roman oppressors would be a useful ally. And so they cried out to Pilate at his death. Remember, we found this fellow forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, blatant lie, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so they translate the word Christos, right, for their for their uh, Roman overlords, so they could know that we call him Christ, but that's a king, and you should oppose a king. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. They knew if they presented him as a king, the Roman officials would be on their side. Now, some of them objected that Luke's account differs from Matthew's account in some significant ways. I'll give you the picture on the front of your bulletin this morning. See the picture? And it has a quotation there from this passage. And it says, Behold, or the angel said unto them, Fear not, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, and on and on. It gives you the But then it doesn't show the shepherds. It shows the, the wise men, as we think of them on camels, right? That didn't happen in this story. 
The wise men are from a different part of the story. Just so we know, the Christmas cards are wrong, and uh, the bulletin's wrong, but we use it for an object lesson when we make mistakes. And so, um, so there it is. The stories differ in some very significant ways. Um, Luke writes of the facts surrounding the birth with a specificity that the others leave out. There are no visiting wise men from afar in Luke's tale as there is in Matthew's. Did you notice that? The wise men aren't there. There's no mention of the Holy Family absconding to Egypt. Remember they had to go to Egypt because of Herod's decree? Herod's decree is not here yet. Matthew's account takes place later, perhaps months or even years later than Luke's. And I like to point that out for various reasons, which we'll get into. Luke's events take place in a manger. Matthew's take place after the family's moved into a house. Go back and check, and you'll see that I'm right. The wise men of Matthew's story are led by a star. The shepherds of Luke's account are directed by angels. All four Gospels differ in some very significant ways. Each of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, write for different audiences with different emphases, for different purposes. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptists. Have you heard that term? Because they write synopses of the events. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. So when you hear that term, you'll know what that means, the synoptic gospels. Um, John's account is much different. It's thematic. It doesn't even start with the birth. Did you notice that? For John, there are no historical events to point to when he starts his gospel. Why? Because the universe isn't here yet. He doesn't begin his gospel with, in those days. He begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. Jesus is there in the beginning, calling the world into being and planning all these things that are going to come about and be chronicled by great journalists like Luke. So there's no historical events to point to with regard to the divine origins of Jesus. They've not yet been created. He's just there. He's the Word, the pre-existent Word, the pre-incarnate Jesus as Savior. So the baby, who will come many, many generations later, is the creator of the universe. Luke has almost certainly read Matthew's account. Matthew's account was written early. It would have been part of the uh, investigation, right? You had a couple of accounts already written. You would read them. And so it was a calculated decision to focus upon other aspects of the gospel story that Matthew did not mention. Both Luke and Matthew were believers, though. Matthew was an apostle and a Jew, Luke was a Gentile, but an associate of Paul in the ministry. And so they're certainly not trying to upstage one another, but rather to complement the work of one another. John was the last to write, and so why would he cover the same material in the same way as the others? It was better for him to focus upon aspects of Jesus' life and ministry that the others left out or maybe weren't aware of. They didn't all know the same facts necessarily. So verses 4 and 5, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. They say things a little differently there. I hear people do that here. They say, I'm going down to Canada. See, I don't go down to Canada. I go down to Mexico. I go up to Canada. Okay, and I don't go, I don't go, if I'm in Galilee, I don't go up to Judea. I go down to Judea. It's just a, did you notice they say Mary was waiting to be delivered? It's the way they say it. Jesus is waiting to be delivered, right? Um, and so they went to this town called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, and that's how the Romans decided this would happen. You had to go back to the city of your origins because that's where your birth records were. 
So at some specific time and place in Roman-occupied Palestine, this decree goes out. And the families of the earth obey the decree, and they each go to their own city. Bethlehem was the city of David. You go back to the book of 1 Samuel, and you'll see that that's the case. It was also the city of Joseph and Mary, descendants of David. So suffice it to say that Augustus was not trying to get the ancient IRS to be user-friendly. He wasn't making it easy for you. It was a decree. It was not a suggestion. And pregnant or not pregnant, you had to go. You got to get on your donkey and go. And if you were a wise man from the east, you got on your camel and you went, I suppose, if we can take Hallmark at their word. (laughs) What becomes for us an interesting point of history that might have had a lesser impact on the first century readers is the fact that Augustus's decree, which was to the whole world, concerns itself with a world that no longer exists. Friends, the man on the street doesn't know who Augustus is. I challenge you to go ask him. Pick the first man you find on the street. Say, you know who Augustus is? Unless he has an Uncle Gus, he's probably not going to know anybody. Russ has an Uncle Gus. Um, The man on the street's not aware, but ask him who Jesus Christ is. Friends, the, the controller of the known world is lost to history, but the baby in the manger is the one everyone... I mean, I don't think you could buy a greeting card with Augustus making the decree on it. No one would know what it, what it was. So the world that Luke wrote about no longer exists. But the birth he wrote about is still celebrated and sung about. That says something, doesn't it? That the whole world looks to Jesus in a way that the whole world never looked to Augustus. Augustus didn't even know what the real whole world was. Thought it was the three continents and just the tip of Africa, the top part of Africa, right? So Augustus... What is Augustus? Augustus is a title he gave him himself. His name was Octavius or Octavianus, all right? And he was the nephew and then adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he rightly took the role. And he was quite a great man. But the term Augustus means venerable or majestic or great. It invokes a definite reference to deity. You know, they did used to worship by this time the Roman emperor as though he were God. And indeed, among men, Augustus was truly great. He was the successor to Julius Caesar, who was also great. And like his uncle, he was successful in conquest and in governing. In human terms, friends, he was a truly great man. So for the first century reader, Augustus would not only have been known but revered. He would not only have been revered, but he would have been feared. And so the Lord has this wonderful plan to insert the Christ child into that society. It would have been unthinkable. For the first century citizen of Rome to imagine a world where Rome no longer existed, where the emperors were a thing of the past, where one man could make a decree and the whole world had to jump to it, although we're getting back to that, I think. For the readers of later centuries, the true power in the universe, the true sovereign who makes decrees, is hidden in obscurity and at the same time displayed for all to see. The sovereign reveals himself in the Christmas story as nowhere else in Scripture, friends. The Lord of heaven rules the angels to direct the shepherds. He rules the stars to lead the wise men. He rules the heart of Caesar to decree that his son will be born in the city of his choice. The true ruler brings all these things together. And so Luke carries out his mission to tell the story. And so we're the beneficiaries of Luke's commitment. Aren't you glad Luke wrote the story and and did the, the legwork? So friends, Augustus is long dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. Rome's buried in the sands of time, and the kingdom of God is a glory yet to be seen in its fullness. Verses 6 and 7. 
And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay? I remember seeing a depiction of this in one of those Christmas stories when I was very young. I think it was a cartoon version of it. And they went up to the inn and the person said, get out of here, you can't come into the inn. It doesn't say that. Nobody was being mean to them. It's just everyone from all these generations past had to flood into this little city all of a sudden. And uh, the holiday inns were all full up. And so they had to stay in the manger, at least for that, for that night. You would have thought, though, that someone might say, could you give up your place for this pregnant woman? But God had to have a sign for the shepherds. And he couldn't say it's room 304 at Hotel 6. He had to say, he's in a manger, and he's in swaddling cloths. So the child is born in the most inauspicious of circumstances. I mean, it's really amazing that the story's about Augustus Caesar's decree, but it's really not. It's about this woman who travels on a donkey with her husband, presumably, to the home of their birth, ends up uh, in, a, in a feeding trough. That's really what a manger is. And as I told you last week, this is the season where we get to use all those wonderful Christmas time words like lo and behold, right? When else do you use that? When else do you say twas? Like twas the night before Christmas or tis the season to be jolly, right? These are great Christmas words. And so Luke gives us two more. Manger, no one talks about mangers unless it's Christmas. If someone says manger, you don't think they're talking about a farm. You think they're talking about Bethlehem. And who says swaddling cloths? I don't think Christina's in the other room saying, Jonathan, we're all out of swaddling cloths for Calvin. We've got to get some more things for him to swaddle in. We, we only use that once a year. Those are Christmas words, friends. So last week, we read from chapter 1 of the divine origins of Jesus' paternity. Mary had not known a man, but she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit who was God. Pretty miraculous, right? We spoke also of the sad superstitions of other Christian traditions that exalt Mary to the status of Christ. And I spoke on that somewhat last week, all right? And I think you all know what I'm talking about. It's called, in the Catholic faith, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and we spoke of it, all right? And they speak of it as though she, too, had been born of God in the same miraculous way. But I would point you here to a few considerations that should put such obvious falsehood to rest, all right? So let's look at them. They're right here in the text. First, when Mary was met by the angel and the miraculous birth of the son was announced, there was no talk of her miraculous birth. She didn't say, oh, the same way my mother had me by the Holy Spirit, right? But rather, she candidly noted her ignorance of the process. She said, how can this be since I do not know a man? If she had been conceived the same way, that wouldn't have been her statement. She would have said, you know, I know exactly how it works. Say no more. My mother taught me the story. Me too. Um, yeah, you're looking at Daniel. Daniel came up with that. We were talking the other night. I always like to give reference. But um, I also want to give reference that it's right here in the text. You know, um, I could have, could have quoted Daniel, but I chose Luke. I mean, do <laughs> A second point of consideration is that the birth of Christ rendered her ritually unclean, Right? For 40 days, just as it did any other woman. The word immaculate means perfectly clean. My mother was a linguist. She knew a lot of words. And I didn't own a dictionary until my mother died because I'd just call her up and say, what does this mean? We didn't have internet in those days. She had paper and ink and stuff. But um, I'd call her up. My mother would say immaculate. Like, she, like she'd you know, put us when we were babies, put us in the sink and wash us and go, oh, you're immaculate now. It means perfectly clean. 
Of course, my mother was the only one that knew that that meant that. But it's a point of Mosaic law that a new mother is unclean 40 days. And so we read, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Jesus was not ritualistic, unclean. Mary was. The next verse concludes the case. We read this, Offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Joseph had to go out and buy a couple of pigeons and sacrifice them for his sin and the sin of his wife, right? A person immaculately conceived has no need to offer sacrifices for sin. Jesus didn't offer sacrifices, but the one... Mary did. And I say all this not to diminish Mary, but to exalt Jesus, as she did. The sinless son offers no sacrifices for his sins. He offers sacrifices for our sins. He didn't even pay the temple tax, if you remember. He said the sons had privilege. And he sent the apostle Peter out, throw a hook and a line in the water, pull up a fish, and the temple, the coin for the tax was in the fish's mouth. Friends, there's nothing in Scripture that could be understood as anyone but Jesus Christ being born from this process of the Holy Spirit impregnating a woman. And there's nothing in the writings that should leave us to believe that though Mary sang a psalm exalting Jesus as Savior, that Jesus would would sing such a song exalting her. It's unthinkable. To put her on a pedestal where she hears prayers and becomes an intermediary between the believer and his God is a purely Human tradition, it has no warrant in Scripture. Give it up. I'm trying here to be charitable to other traditions, but I have to emphasize that to exalt the mother of Christ in such a way is nothing less than rank idolatry. And the true person of Mary who's in heaven with God would never receive such praises anyway. And I think her simple but powerful song of praise is all the evidence we should need on that account. So she sang her song, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the immaculate state of his maiden? No, the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. That was her song. She's of a lowly state and she recognizes it. She needs a Savior because she's not born of God like her sinless son is born. Distinct differences. How we overlook them? To get to the place of Mariolatry that the churches revere today, you have to depart from scripture you have to make your choice and so the savior is born friends the manger is the sign to the shepherds that the child is the one the angels heralded in the pasture the father is the legal father only the mother's blessed among women but the child is the one and only savior god creator and redeemer he is the sovereign over all creation he's the sole hearer of every prayer of the saints don't direct him to other saints They can hear them, and if they could, they wouldn't. They would say, stop being an idolater and pray to God. So there's no other person, human or divine, who can offer forgiveness for sins. We don't pray in the name of Mary. We don't pray in the name of uh, St. Christopher or St. Joseph or all of these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Anything you ask in my name, he said, it'll be done for you. And so Luke writes in his other addition to the, to the Bible, the, the, the book of Acts, he writes, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One name, one God, one Savior. And the prayers of the saints are prayed always in his name alone. And so he, Jesus says of himself, whatever you ask in my name I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Henceforth, 
she will be called blessed, not divine. Henceforth, we're called blessed. However, we should always recall the full nature of blessing. She'll be called blessed. It comes with joys and it comes with heartache and trouble, and that's the nature of it. It's all to the glory of God. Recall this very promise by the prophet Simeon, who was in the temple for the circumcision of Jesus. He said this very thing to Mary. The prophet saw the future, and it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and of a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There's a sadness connected with that blessing. She is revered. She is blessed. But there's a sadness in it as well. And so the Bible narratives clearly establish that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the heir to David's throne. He was born into the world in human flesh, but he laid aside his glory. Friends, he laid aside his glory, but he didn't lay aside his deity. Right? He looked like any other man, but he acted like God. Who else goes around healing people with a word and forgiving sins? That was the crime that he committed because they couldn't see past the veil of the flesh. So he laid aside his glory, but he did not lay aside his deity. He displayed it throughout his ministry in the healing of his touch and in the wisdom of his words. But in spite of all he did and all that he taught, he was vehemently depo- opposed rather, by vile interests implacable adversaries and so it brings up another aspect of the spiritual nature of the story we live in a world dominated by satan don't be afraid it's always been that way this is not a myth friends satan is not a myth it's a true story and i hope that with each passing year you do not miss that it's demonstrably true by chapter four of this gospel satan appears to let the savior know that this is his world to govern in mark's gospel He appears no later than chapter 1 when Jesus goes into the wilderness and gets tempted, right? In Matthew, it's chapter 4. So Satan met the Lord at a moment of human weakness and hunger and reminded him of the power that he possesses. And so the devil said to the adult Jesus, All this authority I'll give to you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Maybe that's why he's called the God of this age or the prince of the power of the air or the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, because he truly is the God of the world, right? Now, there's a few theories about how this actually works, the mechanism of this. My theory is very simple. The devil is telling essentially the truth there, all right? All this authority has been given to him. The world was made for Adam. You remember that. He was the first son of God. Adam was the Lord over his world. It was seduced from him by his wife, who was easy prey to temptation, you know, Eve ate of the, the apple or the quince or the pomegranate or whatever it was, but she ate of it and offered it to Adam. If he didn't eat of it, it wouldn't have fallen. He was the Lord that had to eat of it. He was the Lord that was told to take dominion in your world, reproduce and take dominion, be fruitful and multiply, right? But she was so beautiful and so innocuous, and it was just a bite. He took it. But what did he do when he took it? He changed God's. When you don't obey the Lord, you're obeying another Lord. And so that's what happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. See, today that wouldn't have happened. She would have been online looking at the fruit, and it would have taken some days to get there, and probably would have been caught up in the supply chain problems, and this never would have happened. 
But she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband, and he ate. The action is the choosing of one Lord over another. The one Lord said, don't eat. The other one said, what harm is there in eating? God said, Jesus said, rather, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? And so the temptations of Christ ensued. And with each seductive onslaught of promised glory, Jesus overcame the devil with a word. But the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works and the sons of disobedience does not slumber or sleep. And the reason is, is because he believes in the virgin birth. But he was outwitted by the Lord in the desert. So all through the earthly life of Jesus, the adversary tried to kill him. And so when he perceived that he succeeded at Calvary, he found that the victory he so coveted was no victory at all. And the death of Christ was the sword that pierced the heart of his mother, became the ultimate victory. And all those who see him for who he is are the ultimate victors. You can't say what one minister said to me many years ago. I believe the gospel, but I don't know about the virgin birth. A little up in the air on that. All those who see him for who he is are the ultimate victors, friends. We're victorious in Christ, never having struck a blow of, of our own. He accomplished for us what we could not. He was clear-eyed through every temptation and deception, where we, being sons of Adam, would just fall to those things. The world was under the sway of the devil, and it took the songs of angels to make these shepherds see. It took heavenly messengers to deliver the clear testimony of the birth of the Son of God. All that's left for us to do is to choose our God. That's always been the choice. Moses wrote of it like this. He said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he's your life and the length of your days. Choose this day who you will serve. Joshua said likewise, choose you this day whom you will serve as for me and my house will serve the Lord. And that's an abridged uh, representation of those verses. He listed all the gods that you might choose, like the Canaanites around you, like the Canaanites around us. But no, we choose the one that was born, announced by angels, found by shepherds in a manger. That's the one we choose. What damage is done this time of year when so many voices speak against the miraculous entrance of our Lord into the world? You know what I look at that like? I compare that to Herod's decree to kill all the infants. It's the same kind of thing. Let's, let's snuff out that tradition, right? So many wise men, so many preachers, so many priests will never see what the shepherds saw or know what the shepherds know. These naysayers try to accomplish what Herod's infanticidal decree failed to do. They failed to do what crucifixion failed to do, friends. This is the satanic impulses in men all through history trying to squelch this story and say it's not true. They thought the crucifixion would put the nail in the coffin of the story, but as it turns out, there was no coffin. They didn't even get to that. They failed to do what the Roman guards at the tomb failed to do. Remember, they started lying about it. They were bribed. Well, we'll, we'll do away with this story. We'll just lie about it for a profit. No one will ever know in all of history. They failed and will fail to silence the truth of the ultimate gospel tale, the miraculous birth of the Savior. And so Luke writes, and so we believe, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign unto you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. 
Father, in Jesus' name, let us never lose our love of the miraculous and our expectation of it and our faith in all these demonstrably true tales of the gospel, particularly with respect to the miraculous birth of Christ our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.